0: And now, in the name of our loving, liberating, and life-giving God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Allow me to begin by thanking your dean, my friend and colleague, Dean Kimbrough, for this invitation to share in this series, this summer series. Thank you, Dean Kimbrough. Our friendship goes back many years, and I pray God's blessing on you and your family, and God's blessing on the entire Christchurch Cathedral community, that God will enable you all to continue to bear witness to the way of Jesus and his love in our world. So thank you for this invitation. Allow me to offer a text from a passage that was actually a gospel a few weeks ago. I didn't have an opportunity to preach on it then. But... But the text is suggestive, comes from Luke chapter 10. It's the parable of the good Samaritan. A lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ because I believe that in his teachings, in his spirit, in his manner of life, in his way of love, he has shown us the way of life. The way of life for us as individuals and in families and communities, but the way of life not only for us as individuals and in our family and in our relationships, but the way of life in our social, national, global, political, economic, all of our arrangements all of the ways and the places in which we live i'm a follower of jesus because i believe he has shown us god's way of love which is god's way of life you have given the right answer jesus said do this and you will live a lawyer came up to jesus for whatever the motives to test him whether genuine curiosity or veiled animosity and he said good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life now that question to us we automatically think he's asking about going to heaven and that's involved but when he asked what must I do to inherit eternal life he's asking what must I do to discover life now its purpose, its meaning, the reason I'm here as well as my eternal life in the fullness and the presence of you. What must I do to inherit eternal life, to live a life that actually matters, that is consonant and in communion with God's design and dream for our lives? What must I do to inherit eternal life now, temporally, and unto the day of eternity? When I was a kid, In my family, we uh, most of my family um, is Baptist. um, uh, A a small portion Pentecostal Holiness, and an even smaller portion Episcopalian. And um, we used to actually have a family joke uh, that depending on who died, which which denominational side of the family, uh, you could tell when the funeral would, how long the funeral would be, um, how long it would take to get to the graveside, and then come back for repast. Um, If you were from the uh, Episcopalian side of the family, if the funeral was at 10 o'clock, you'd be back for brunch. If you were from the Baptist side of the family, it would take a little bit longer and it would be um, a late lunch. And if you were from the Pentecostal side of the family, you'd be back for dinner. One of the things that often happened, um, especially on the Baptist side of our family is that uh, the same preacher often preached many of the funeral sermons. And one of his favorite stories or illustrations was to say, imagine when you go to the cemetery and you look at the gravestones. And on the gravestones, you usually find, you know, the name of the person uh, who is buried, who is interred there. And you see uh, underneath uh, may say something like, uh, beloved father, husband, uh, friend, And then you would see the date and year of the person's birth, and usually a little dash, and then the date and the year of their death. And the preacher would say, you know, the person didn't really have anything to do with when they were born, they just showed up. And in all likelihood, they really didn't have a great deal to do specifically with the date of their death. It happened, but they had everything to do with the dash, and he said, the question in life is always, what did you do with your dash? That's what the lawyer was asking Jesus. What must I do with my dash to live a life that actually matters, to live a life that makes a difference, to live a life that is in harmony with God's dream and vision and sublime intention for me and for human life? and existence. What must I do with my dash? What must I do to inherit eternal life now and unto the day of eternity? And that's where Jesus said, well, what did Moses say? What did Moses teach? The lawyer reaches back to Deuteronomy and Leviticus where Moses taught you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew's version of a similar story, Jesus says on these two love of God and love of neighbor, hang all the law and the prophets. Here, Jesus says to the lawyer, you have answered rightly. Love God and love your neighbor. Do these and you will live. I'm a follower of Jesus because I believe he has shown us God's way of love, which is the way of life. I'm a follower of Jesus because I believe Jesus was and is right. Love is the way, not sentimentalized love. The love that we see in Jesus giving himself on the cross, not for himself, but for others the love that John 3.16 is talking about when it says God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only begotten son, that all that believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The love that gives and does not count the cost. The love that cares when it is tempting to care less. The love that seeks the good the welfare and the well-being of others, as well as the self, the love that is not selfish, the love that is not, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that is not jealous, that is not rude, that is not boastful, that does not insist on its own way, that rejoices in the right, that seeks the good, the welfare and the well-being of others. Do that, love your God. Love your neighbor. And while you're at it, love yourself. Do that and you will live. Now I am very much aware and I'm 68 years old, almost old enough to have forgotten how old I actually am, but I've been around long enough to know that that talk of love, talk of love that helps us create a sense of God's kingdom, God's will being done on earth, what Dr. King and others call the beloved community, that talk of this kind of love can seem naive, unrealistic in a tough heartbitten bitten world like ours. And I take that critique seriously, but I've got a response. Consider the alternative consider to the alternative to a life a life that is not simply centered on the self but a life that is lived for the good and the well-being of others as well as the self consider the alternative of a world and life that's all about the self that is self-centered and selfish uh, consider that alternative no society can last long if everyone is about themselves, if it's all about me. No marriage will survive if it's all about me. No community, church, synagogue, mosque, um, a fraternal order, no community can survive if everyone is functioning only for the self. No nation can survive if it's only about the self and no global community, no human family can endure if it is only about the self. In the epistle to St. James, the text actually says, what starts all the wars um, among you? Is it not focus on the self and the self alone? No, 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 don't tell me love is naive consider the alternative we've my friends we've seen the alternative we've we've had glimpses of the abyss we saw it in charlottesville just a few years ago when young men marched through the streets of charlottesville khaki pants tiki torches in hand neo nazis in america marching through the streets shrieking Jews will not replace us. We have seen the abyss. We have seen the alternative. And we cannot go down that road. We have seen the abyss, the alternative. We, we saw it when George Floyd cried for his mama as he was murdered. We've seen the, the abyss when two police officers in Compton, California were gunned down and shot in wanton violence. Oh, oh no, we cannot go down this road. We've seen it when innocent Asian Americans were gunned down in Atlanta. We've seen it when Sikhs were um, uh, molested and attacked. We've seen it when Muslims have been attacked. We've seen it in anti-Semitic attacks on Jews. My friends, we've seen it. We saw it on January the 6th of this year that will not be remembered as the Feast of the Epiphany, but the day of insurrection and the capital of the United States of America, the Cathedral of Democracy was assaulted, not by foreigners from without, but by American citizens, our democracy was attacked in dispute of a vote. But it was more than an attack on our democracy. This was an assault on democracy, to be sure. But this was an assault on the vision of America as a multiracial, multi ethnic, religiously pluralistic democracy, where there is, as my slave ancestors used to say, plenty good room for all God's children, where this is one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice not for some, but for all. One of the police officers a black guy said of that day, I was called the N-word more than I had ever heard in my entire life. This was an assault on the American experiment. Is e pluribus unum possible? Is it possible from many diverse peoples for us to be one nation I'm not ashamed to be a follower of Jesus Christ because I believe that his way of love is God's way of life. I believe he was right, that love is the way. In fact, it's the only way that makes room for us all. Professor Charles Marsh, who teaches at the university of virginia um, and is a friend um, is a, a scholar who has done a theologian um, who's done a lot of work over the years and with dietrich bonhoeffer um, and with the spirituality and in the spirituality and theology of civil rights and social justice in one of his books he says and i quote jesus had founded the most revolutionary movement in all of history it was a movement built on the unconditional love of god for the world and a mandate to live that love jesus began a movement of people who centered their whose lives were centered on him on his teachings on his spirit on his on his manner of life on his way of love and their lives were changed and they in turn Helped to change the world of their times. So much so that in the Acts of the Apostles, it says some people said of those first Christians, these people are not following the ways of the emperor. They are turning the world upside down, saying they believe in another king named Jesus. My brothers and sisters, Jesus was and is right love is the way. On March the 10th, 2016, then presidential candidate Donald Trump spoke at a campaign rally not far from here. I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina. He spoke at a rally in Fayetteville. And as happened during that campaign between him and Secretary of State Clinton, there were protesters from the opposite side present. And at this Trump rally. There were protesters present, and eventually at a certain point, they became louder and law enforcement went and escorted them out, and they actually left peacefully. As they were on their way out, a 79-year-old Trump supporter named John McGraw, who was white, jumped out from the crowd and punched one of the protesters, a man named Raheem Jones, who was black, punched him in the face. Uh, uh, McGraw was arrested uh, by law enforcement. And as he was being taken out, he said, he deserved it. The next time we see him, we might have to kill him. We don't know who he is. He might be from a terrorist organization. We don't know who he is. He might be from a terrorist organization. Anyway, McGraw was arrested and charged with assault. And a few months later, uh, he was found guilty of assault and given a sentence of 12 months probation and community service. At the sentencing, uh, Jones, the guy who was punched, was also present. And he and McGraw actually faced each other after the sentencing. McGraw, who had punched him, apologized and said this, in the hearing of a Raleigh News and Observer reporter. If I met you in the street and the same thing had occurred, I would have said, go home. One of us is gonna get hurt. That's what I would have said. But we are caught up in a political mess today, you and me. And we got to heal our country. And the two men went out to lunch. McGraw was right, we've got to heal our country. The divisions among us, some political, some ideological, some racial, some from a bitter and painful past that we must share and learn from and turn from and find new ways, but all of these divisions that divide and separate us from each other are divisions that can become injurious and dangerous to democracy itself, the human community. But I'm not here to depress you. I'm not here because I'm downtrodden. I'm here because I believe there is a way. And I believe Jesus has shown us the way. When I was growing up, my grandma who was a deep and profound influence on me, I think as I said, Dean Kimbrough, and we were taping the conversation. I said, yeah, I grew up, my daddy was an Episcopal priest, a Beretta-wearing Anglo-Catholic Episcopal priest, and that was certainly my outward form, very much a part of my religion. But if you want, if you scratch underneath the surface of Michael Curry, you'll find Nellie Bell Strayhorn from Sharecropper's daughter from Eastern North Carolina, uh, who was a dying in rock rib Baptist. And Grandma used to love that old song, that, that, that showed us the way, I believe, to heal our land. It, it, it goes like this. Um, you've probably heard it. Um, at one point it says, sometimes I feel discouraged and think my life's in vain, but then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. And then the refrain says, oh, there is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a bomb, a healing salve, a bomb in Gilead to heal the sin sick soul. And then there's another verse that says it this way. So if you cannot preach like Peter. And you cannot pray like Paul. You just tell the love of Jesus. How he died to save us all. There is the bomb in Gilead. There is the healing ointment. There is the power that can heal our land and heal our divisions and heal us and heal the entire human family. There is a bomb in Gilead. Jesus didn't die for himself. He didn't die for what he could get out of it. He didn't get an honorary degree, didn't get wealthy. He didn't get better position in society. He didn't die for what he could get out of it. He didn't die to appease an angry deity, no, no, no. He didn't die for anything like that. He sacrificed his life willingly, showing us what love looks like and how love can bind us together. God so loved the world that he gave of himself. He gave his only begotten son. That kind of unselfish sacrificial love but Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cruciformed love is the love that can save us all. It's the key to life. But let me bring this to a conclusion. Let someone think this is still merely for individual relationships or matters of personal conduct. It is that, but more than that. Dr. King once said it this way. We will either learn to live together as brothers and sisters, or we will perish together as fools. The choice is ours, chaos or community. The path to community, the way to beloved community, individually, in our families, in our nation and in our world is the path of love. And again, lest you think this is merely religious talk, <clears throat> I was in the fifth grade. 1963 it was the year that uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. We were actually listening to public radio in November when they interrupted the program. This is Miss Lenny's fifth grade class. We were in social studies, studying social studies, and we were learning about the Great Seal of the United States, which you often see. Um, sometimes, when the president um, is at the White House, you'll see the flag uh, with the Great Seal on it—the dark blue one with the Great Seal of the United States. And if you look at it, there's the eagle, uh, the bald eagle, um, and and in one tag, in the eagle holding uh, arrows and the other is holding olive branches. Um, And then above the eagle, uh, sometimes there's a banner and the words e pluribus unum are written from the Latin, which means from many, one, from many diverse peoples, one nation, e pluribus unum. It was only last year though, that I actually looked up the origin of that Latin phrase, e pluribus unum, only to discover that it dates back to the Roman Republic, to the writings of Cicero, lawyer and philosopher, who was someone that the founding fathers very much were enamored with. And the phrase, e pluribus unum, comes from the writings of Cicero, where Cicero said, and I quote, when each person loves the other, As much as he loves himself, then e pluribus unum from many one becomes possible. E pluribus unum is the motto of the United States of America. And we will save this democracy when we love one another as much if not more than we love ourselves. Cicero was right. Better yet, Moses was right. And Jesus learned from Moses, you shall love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. Do this and live. There is a bomb in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a bomb in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul love you. God bless you. May God hold us all, us all, in those almighty hands of love.